But now I invite you to take a Bible to open it to Mark chapter 11. We're going to read the first 11 verses of Mark chapter 11. If you're using one of the Bibles provided for you, this is on page 795 in Mark chapter 11. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he, blessed is the coming of the kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And that'll conclude our reading for this morning. Mark's telling of Christ's entrance into Jerusalem on what we celebrate uh, traditionally in Palm Sunday in his entrance. Mark specifically leaves out a lot of detail and information. He tries to tell the story of Christ's entrance in the most ordinary way possible. Sometimes we try to dramatize events, we try to add a few things for flavor and color, and, and Mark, we'll see, is, is doing almost the opposite. There are plenty of other things that he could say, and some of the other gospel writers do, but when we read his account, it's so quick and so brief, and there's such little extra added to it that it's, I think, helpful for us this morning as we're focused on his telling of the story to consider why he does that intentionally. It's, it's not for a lack of information. Um, there's a purpose in the way Mark tells this story. Um, but again, some of you know that I had the opportunity to be in some of these physical places in the fall, and so just my own heart and mind has been awakened to some of these realities. The first picture that's going to come up are of olive trees from the Mount of Olives overlooking Jerusalem. Uh, if you can look at the very, very center, you might be able to see the dome of the rock through the very uh, leaves of the top of the trees in the middle. But this Mount of Olives is a hillside outside of Jerusalem. You can see Jerusalem from it, but to get from the top of here into Jerusalem, you go from a hilltop and you descend down into the Kidron Valley, and then you go back up into Jerusalem. So as you start your walk down the Mount of Olives, this is a point a little bit further in the walk in the next picture, where once you're not even quite halfway down the Mount of Olives at this point, where you're standing, you can see most of Jerusalem. And so right now you can see the, the walls that mark uh, the Temple Mount, and you can see the mosque. 
This isn't what it would have looked like in Jesus' day. There's a cemetery in front of the eastern gate that is a Muslim cemetery. And what is on the very bottom of the picture is a Jewish cemetery that you walk past as you get there. So this all would have just been fields uh, as you would have walked in Jesus' day. But as you're descending down this hill, you eventually get this panoramic view of Jerusalem. When you get to the very, very bottom of the hill, this is now looking up at the walls of Jerusalem from the very bottom of that valley. And so now the wall is intimidating again. So you go from this panoramic view where you can see everything to standing really low and looking up and saying, what am I about to get myself into? <laughs> where, where am I about to enter? And what we read in this story is that Jesus came into Bethpage and Bethany, which is just on the other side of Mount of Olives, and then while he was on the Mount of Olives is where he asked his disciples to go and get a colt, and then they went down in Jerusalem, and then at the end of the day, they came back. So each night of this week, he is not sleeping in Jerusalem. He's coming back outside the city and retracing his steps pretty much on a daily basis. And when you see what those steps require, it just drives home this reality, as we said last week, uh, when Christ was way in the far north in Caesarea Philippi, and Peter finally said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He was so far removed from Jerusalem that if Christ did not want to come and have what happened to him in what we commemorate in Holy Week, he never had to come. No one would have gone looking for him up in Caesarea Philippi. But he knew why he came. He knew the purpose for which his life was given. And so he came down from Caesarea Philippi, went in and around his hometown, around the Sea of Galilee, came down into Judea. And then even here on this week, he has this place of residence with friends each morning and evening just outside the city. And if at any point along the way, he wants to say, yeah, I don't think I want to do this. <laughs> I, think, I think it's going to be another time or I, I'm just going to back out. He can. It's not until Thursday when he asks the disciples to find a room so that they can have dinner inside and not do dinner outside the city when everything starts to unfold in such a way that there's no turning back. But on a regular basis, he is entering in and leaving and entering in the city. And so we commemorate the uniqueness of this first entrance um, on Palm Sunday of this week. But what Mark is trying to say is this is just an ordinary journey that Christ is making. That most faithful followers of the God of Israel, most Jewish brothers and sisters were coming in town for this time, for this celebration of the Passover. Many of them had to find a place to live because Jerusalem wasn't their hometown. And Christ is making this journey as an ordinary Jew to celebrate, along with his brothers and sisters, the good news of God's salvation of his people from slavery in Egypt. And when you have the chance to see it in person and to walk it, you realize just... Um, it's almost surreal when you're there because it, there's a way in our own minds to, to visualize things in, in such a dramatic way that you're like, this is, this is really the ground. This is the place. From this vantage point, you can see the whole of it. It's all there. And it was. It was for most of those people. It was a time of celebration. 
But it wasn't just Jesus on a journey into this city. It wasn't just Jesus crying out for uh, praising the Father for the deliverance that he gave. Then also, even in the song that is sung, uh, actually before we get there, before the song of praise, notice how when Jesus asks his disciples to go and get a colt, he doesn't name drop himself. (laughs) He says to his disciples, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to this place. And if they ask you who needs this, just tell them a master needs this. A rabbi needs this. Well, a lot of rabbis were coming into Jerusalem this week. A lot of masters were. So he doesn't tell Peter to go and say, this is the Christ who is the Messiah, who's about to have all this stuff happen, and so you need to give him this. No. He basically, he's almost telling them, don't use my name. Don't say specifically who this is for. Just tell them that your master has need of it. And so even to the, to the owner of this colt, nothing would have stood out as unusual. There's a lot of travelers in town. They need places to stay. They need to borrow things. This is like Uber in the first century, okay? I need to get here. I got a little more tired than I thought getting here, and so I need something to just to get me the rest of the way. And so they go, and they get it, and he gets his ride into the city. And then even as this song is sung, yes, they put a cloak on it, and there's people shouting praises, but this psalm that's sung by them, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. As Bobby read it for all of us from Psalm 118, this was a psalm that many people would have been singing as they would have come to Jerusalem for Passover. There's a collection of psalms that they would have specifically identified from Psalm 113 to 120, 130, that they would have said, these are the psalms that we really want to sing the closer and closer we get to Jerusalem, the closer we get to Passover. So even if you would have had a video camera or an audio recording on this event and you heard this song, it wouldn't necessarily have stood out to you as something dramatically different than any other time or any other year when God's people came together to celebrate the Passover. And so what Mark doesn't do that some of the other disciples, or some of the other gospel writers do, is even in Jesus uh, riding on the colt, he doesn't make reference to Zechariah and say, well, this is to fulfill prophecy. And he doesn't record here the people starting to worship him and the conflict that that causes with the Pharisees. He presents it to us as a very ordinary journey that he's taking, surrounded by an ordinary song of praise that's being offered. That if we think everyone knows what's going on and everyone is hearing this, we're just misunderstanding. There's a crowd of people. There are multiple entrances into the city. Something can happen on one part that most of the people on the other part have no idea is happening. It's just a really, really large crowd of people. And if you've ever been in a, a large event, you, you recognize. You might be somewhere and someone will say, oh, I heard this happened. Did you see it? No, I didn't see it. And when, when someone doesn't know where they are, uh, and so if they, they hear of a, a crime in Ohio and they say, I heard about this crime in Ohio. Were you there? Like, no, that was, that was three hours away from where I live. Really? I guess I don't know how big Ohio is. Or when you're in a big city, you know, the largest, I think, gathering of people I was at was the championship parade for the Cavs. Uh, you know, 1.3 million people down in one place. No one's cell phone worked once you finally got down there. 
but it was so many people. You had no idea what was happening 20 feet away from you once you got into that large of a crowd, let alone anything that would have just been happening a quarter of a mile away from you. So as we read about this event, and we think of it with significance in terms of what it means, eventually, as the week unfolds, we have to remember, in the moment, no one knows this. No one is experiencing this as extraordinary or special. This is the ordinary way they get into Jerusalem. This is an ordinary song that's sung. It's a long prayer of God's people. Yes, Lord, save us now. It's sort of a call and response. The Hosanna is save us now, we pray. And then blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord is sort of the response. So save us. Thank you for saving us. We need you. Thank you for coming. And it's a song that ever since the psalmist wrote it would have been included in the prayers and the petitions of the people of God. We do need salvation And we thank you that in our history, time and time again, you have saved us. So why is Jesus doing all of these very ordinary things? So we see his humility, not just because he's riding on a colt as opposed to a war horse, but he's doing everything in a way that does not really draw attention to himself, like you or I would if we were about to enter Jerusalem. (laughs) Uh, just on Friday, uh, Cindy and I were able to attend together. There was uh, an Anglican priest in town who pastors in Jerusalem in the old city in Christ Church, which is a city, which is a church and has a coffee shop that we were able to go to as a family uh, for part of the time. And as he's giving this presentation now in Northeast Ohio, he talks to the, you know, the group of people that are assembled together about the Jerusalem syndrome. He said, do you guys know what the Jerusalem syndrome is? And he said, I think I've heard of it, maybe. He said, it primarily affects Canadian and American white men. But it's a psychological phenomenon. Our our hospitals have them in our uh, various wards where people come here and all of a sudden get a really inflated view of themselves. They come here and all of a sudden, at some point in their journey, they think they're Elijah. Or they think they're an angel. Or they think they're now the prophet who's going to announce the end of the world. And they, it happens so often, we have a name for it, and it's called the Jerusalem Syndrome. And we try to get these people help. <laughs> we try to get them in counseling and talking to other people. And here's Jesus, who is actually the Messiah, <laughs> who if there were to be billboards that were, you know, upon entrance showing a picture of him, if there was going to be a dramatic announcement saying, everyone pay attention to who's entering right now, he wouldn't be crazy. Like, he'd be, this is the guy. He's the one. And so if he's coming in such an ordinary way that he's not trying to draw attention to himself, he's not name-dropping himself, it's all intentional that he's keeping it close to himself who he is, that he's not, he's not wanting to push anyone over by his name, by his title, by his presence, by his power. He wants anyone to feel like they could come up to him. And that's part of the point of how Mark is telling the story. As Jesus is entering, he's coming in this very ordinary way with ordinary songs and prayers being sung. 
so that anyone and everyone could feel like they could approach him. Just how he'd conducted all of his ministry. Children felt comfortable to come up to him even when adults were like, what are you doing going up to him? (laughs) There was something about him that made him a comfortable person for anyone to come to. Gentiles who otherwise shouldn't have had dealings with him eventually felt comfortable with him. As the savior of the world, he's specifically coming in such a way so that he is accessible and available for each and every person. When he comes in and then it says they sort of come in the later of day and he takes uh, a look at everything and then he withdraws back to Bethany for the end to do the same journey the very next day. Similar type songs are sung. He's probably not borrowing a cult each time. There's a uniqueness to this day. But the journey he's making each and every day. His disciples don't know all that's at stake, but he does. And it's this wonderful picture of his intentionality as he comes into Jerusalem. This isn't an accident. This isn't a fluke. This isn't something that he's somehow just willing himself. Maybe he can get himself to do it one time, but not another time. No, he does it. And he can repeat it. That's why eventually where the title of the series comes from, the joy set before him comes from Hebrews chapter 12. As the the early followers of Christ look back on these events, they say it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. He knew what the end was going to be, and so he did this willingly, not reluctantly, not haphazardly, and he shows that he was going to do it again and again. If you will, as we look back in the story, and it, if the cross shows us that he loves us, when we just picture the geography of the land in this final week, each day is him basically saying, I really love you. Like, I really, really love you. I really, really, really love you. I really, 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 really love you. I'm going in and out, in and out, in and out. Every time I go, I could stay out. But I'm coming back, and I'm coming back, and I'm coming back. And he's so routine in what he does that Judas knows exactly where to find him after the Last Supper when he does decide that he's going to betray him and he goes and he gets soldiers who are going to come after and help arrest him, he knows where to look for him. Because in this Kidron Valley, between these two hills is a place where a garden is that probably would have been a resting point to either have a drink, a time of prayer, together as disciples. And so Judas knows where he's going to be because this land, this trip, this geography around Jerusalem is something familiar to them. Christ doesn't give them the instructions. He says, you know, what you're going to do, go do quickly. He doesn't say, go find me (laughs) where we usually go. It's just, it's the pattern of his life to do this. How amazing is it that the God of the universe is willing to so clothe himself in humility that he would take this very ordinary journey be surrounded by ordinary songs of praise, not draw attention to himself, but to make the point to each and every one of us that he's accessible and available and that he really, really loves us. 
It's what tells us that he is an extraordinary savior. He's an extraordinary savior. It's one of the dangers of people thinking too much of him too quickly. We already got a glimpse of it last week with Peter. When Jesus says, he is the Christ. When Peter says of him, he is the Christ, son of the living God. And Jesus says, well, all of these things must happen to me. Peter says, no way. We're not going to let that happen to you. And Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're not speaking on the things of God. You're speaking on the things of man. Well, that's true right now in this final week. If more and more people start to think of Jesus as the one that we should be putting up the billboards and making the announcements for, they're going to build up, if you will, a defense for him. They're going to say, no one's going to touch him. We've got his back, and we've got his back. And so he is specifically withholding that information, not promoting himself, because he doesn't want anyone else to die for him. He's not asking anyone to fight for him. He came to die for them. He came to fight for us. He came to be available for each and every one of us who cries this ordinary prayer that all of humanity in some way and time cries, God save us, we pray. God give us success, we pray. And in his life we can see that he was willing to do whatever it took to bring that about so that all of us could believe that it's here for us, that it's available, it's accessible to each and every one of us. And it's, it's a beautiful picture, just like he told the owner of this cult as he told his disciples, tell him I just need it for a very brief time. At the end of the week, like he entered into the city on a borrowed cult, at the end of the week, he would be put into a borrowed tomb. But there again, he would say, I only need it for a very short time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that though you are worthy of all glory and praise, that though all of creation rightly reveals to us who you are, that if we should make a big deal about anyone, you are that person that you were willing so humbly to come on this earth to live among your people, to walk with your disciples in a way that anyone and everyone could feel comfortable approaching you. That though you were the king of the universe, you did not keep yourself away from your people but you entered into their story, into their travels, into their celebrations, into their prayers and songs. We pray that you would help us to believe that still today, that wherever we've come from, whatever our week has been, whatever our struggles are, that you are the God who is accessible and available for each and every one of us that we can join in this prayer and this song looking for hope and salvation and that we can find it in you. 
Father, we know that we have an enemy of our soul who wants to tell us that we're not good enough or that it's not possible for us to come to you, that you don't care, that you don't really, really love us. And so we pray that through your word, through the truth of your life and the power of your death and resurrection for us, you would help us to dispel the lies of the enemy, to believe by faith in the truth of the gospel, that your love is so great for us, that it endures forever, that it really was for the joy that was set before you, that you entered into the city, that you flipped over tables, that you challenged the leaders, that you broke bread with your disciples, that you were willingly bound by your enemies. Father, help this to not just be information for us, but help it to be truth that transforms us in the way we seek to live our own lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand and sing our closing song.